Welcome to Life Unrestricted. This is your show if you're sick of living a life controlled by food and exercise rules and if you're ready to learn how to accept yourself and enjoy the heck out of life. My gig is about body image, femininity, self-worth and resilience. Come on, let's walk side by side as we slowly step out of restriction misery and unlock our true selves. Your host, Merit Boxler, is a former national radio DJ, freelance journalist, speaker, and writer with a passion to make women feel good in their bodies. This is a show brought to you live from Switzerland. Hi there, it's Merit again with number three, episode number three of Life Unrestricted. Uh, this might confuse the heck out of you, but um, I was just thinking about um, starting my shows with the, the Swiss German word for hello, which is Grüezi. So if you pass someone on the street in Switzerland, you would say Grüezi or Grüezi miteinander in case there's more than one person. So there's Grüezi. But then I thought, no, 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 this doesn't work. But you only operate with the word you. So no matter um, how well we know each other, you'd say you. Um, can I talk to you? In, in German or Swiss German, we wouldn't do that because that would be du. And you have to sort of know someone better in order for them to offer them the du, you know, so that you can actually say you to them. Until then, you talk to them in a polite manner and you just say um, Miss Boxler, for example, or Miss Muller, or Miss Smith, or Mr. Meyer. So that'd be the polite form. And Grüezi is applicable to the polite form. You say Grüezi and then you're being really polite on the street, or Grüezi miteinander, that's if there's more than one person. Um, but yeah, so I thought, no, Grüezi is, nah, that's restricted, right? <laughs> so what would be the other form? The other form would be, um, if there's more than one person, you'd say, Hoitame, which is like literally translated, it would mean hello together. We could just fly with that. Hello together. Or even worse, you know, the totally Swiss touristy sort of way, which would be hello together. But I don't think we want to go there. No, 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 no. So to cut a long story short, I'm still not sure if I should just say hoi zusammen in the future. You might just, you know, do you want to learn Swiss German maybe? Then just, you know, tell me. I'll teach you a word every episode. But yeah, maybe not a good idea. So greeting complications aside, I have someone to present to you, someone to introduce you to. It's Nicola Rinaldi. Nicola Rinaldi, she's um, 42 years old, lives in Boston with her husband and her three boys. She's the gal to go to for any sort of resources on hypothalamic amenorrhea, which means loss of menstrual cycle. Nicola has a PhD in computational biology from MIT, and she has experienced firsthand the implications of hypothalamic amenorrhea, or HA, as it's also called. 
After she recovered from it, she started to share her knowledge on a blog and uh, she was able to successfully help hundreds of other women to get their periods back. After seeing just how many women were looking for advice and how little information there really was at the time, she decided to change that and to help women. And by now she can call herself an author. She wrote that book that so many women were hoping for. It's called No Period, Now What? It's a comprehensive guide to recovery for women who have lost their periods. Nicola and I were chatting via Skype, and the first thing I asked her was how she pronounces her name. I mostly go by Nick in real life and Nico on the on the boards and things. That's sort of my my hypothalamic amenorrhea recovery alter ego. <laughs> so hi, Nicola. Hi. I'm so happy you came on the show today and I'm psyched to have you because you are well of knowledge about everything concerning menstrual cycles or lack thereof, I should say. Yeah. Sadly, this seems to become more and more of an issue, I think, as we are um, in a dieting world and ever more women are trying to become thinner and they restrict their food more and exercise more, which turns out to be a very bad combination. Yeah. Once we know this, when it comes to female health and hormonal balance. So what a treat to have you here, because for the longest time, I didn't realize that uh, my lack of menstrual cycle had anything to do with the way I ate or exercised. So yeah. before we start, though, please tell us who you are and what happened in your life. Thank you so much for having me. This is a great opportunity. Um, so I am 42. I have a, an almost 10-year-old, an almost 8-year-old, and a 4-year-old. Um, so I lost my period at the end of my graduate school career. I was doing a PhD at MIT. And um, I was exercising a lot because my husband was away from, you know, he was a consultant. So he was traveling a lot for work and I loved exercise. And so I was doing it all the time. I played ice hockey and volleyball and squash and I would ride my bike and I would lift weights. And so it was just like, I was just having fun and I would play with my coworkers and, you know, it was just, a, it was a really great time in my life. Um, and then my coworkers decided to go on a diet and I was like, Oh, you know, I've got some love handles. I want to get pregnant soon. And, you know, I kept reading about how, you should lose weight to be healthy to get pregnant. And so I really took that to heart. And I think like many women who end up in this situation, I'm a perfectionist. Um, and when I do something, I really do it. So I decided along with my coworkers, we were going to do 1500 calories a day. And I did that. And I had a little Excel file and I tracked every little, every morsel that I ate. And, um, you know, that's, I mean, I think regardless of your situation, that's a low number of calories. But for the amount I was exercising, I was my, you know, I lost weight like there was, like it was going out of style. I thought it was great. I thought it was so good for me. Um, and then I went off the pill to try and get pregnant and no period. And, you know, I was kind of like, huh, that's odd. And my doctor was like, oh, well, you know, a lot of people have that problem when they come off the pill. And so let's wait three months and see what happens. And meanwhile, I was continuing with this insane exercise schedule and not eating. And um, so 
yeah, and eventually I ended up, um, you know, I did a lot of research and I figured out I wasn't eating enough. And so I started eating more and I cut my exercise by a little bit, but that was, it was about 10 years ago. It was before my, you know, before I got pregnant with my first son. And so there really wasn't a lot of information about it. Um, and so it took me a long time to kind of figure out my, you know, figure out the next steps from there. And that's, I started my blog at that time. Um, and I sort of got involved in the blogging community and it wasn't a common problem, but there were a few others like me. And so we kind of worked through it together and figured out what we needed to do. And, um, about 18 months after I went off the pill, I had my first, well, yeah, my second natural cycle. My first one was kind of thrown in there and then my doctors had no clue what they were doing and long story. So that's, that's a little bit of an intro and I think I kind of went all over the place, but. No, no, you didn't. It's all good. You said that um, you tracked every morsel you ate every day when you started dieting there. That's how it starts for many. And this can slowly become, you know, nastier and nastier and then in the end even turn into an obsession. How was it for you? Did it turn into a full-blown eating disorder? I was, I was close to slipping into an eating disorder. I got really addicted to seeing the number on the scale go down. And that started to define for me... Um, it started to define me and, you know, it was like, I was so much about losing weight and dropping those pounds and I thought it was healthy. Um, you know, and then I, I was actually really helped out by a friend of mine who was blogging at the same time and she was going through something very similar and she wrote about, um, Uh, a study that was done in Michigan in the 1950s of men who were in the army. Um, oh, do you mean the Minnesota starvation experiment? Yeah. Great that you mentioned this. Please explain this study a little more um, because I think everyone should know about this. I certainly didn't for much too long. And it so clearly shows the damaging effects of calorie restriction, I think. They didn't want to fight, so they were doing this study instead. And they were limited to 1,500 calories a day. You know, it's, it's really worth reading at least a summary of the study. It, it's really eye-opening as to the incredible effects of long-term calorie deprivation. Oh, yeah, it's definitely an eye-opener. These were all mentally and physically strong and healthy young men who yeah. were tested for the effects of not having enough food in wartime. Mm -hmm. But it's stunning. It's really stunning to see what happened. Apparently, one threatened to inflict self-harm if they didn't let him go. Yeah. Many totally lost it. And all of them became fully obsessed with food after that. Mm -hmm. And even months After the study, I read that they were totally fixated on food and overate for quite a while to make up for their deprivation. Some of them apparently even went to become chefs, funnily enough. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was shocked. When I read the study, it seemed so blatantly obvious what happened, but I had never thought about diets in that way, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, hardly anyone knows about this. And everybody blames themselves for overeating after falling off the quote-unquote diet wagon. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so diets and lifestyle restrictions are getting worse all around us. And exercise regimen are getting harder and harder. People are cutting out entire food groups nowadays for the sake of 
following some guru or some new idea, I think it's increasingly crazy. What happened to you after you read that study? So I read the study and then I looked at, you know, I'd started waking up at night hungry and I was not eating anything. And I was like, that is exactly what those men, what happened to those men. They were waking up and they were hungry and, you know, they weren't allowed to feed themselves because they were on the study. But I'm like, I'm not on a study. Why am I doing this to myself? And so I started, you know, I started listening to my body more and eating, you know, if I woke up at five o'clock in the morning hungry, I would go downstairs and get something to eat because I was like, that's what my body needs. And so I think that reading that study and also what my friend was going through and how it helped her kind of pull back from her eating disorder um, or disordered eating, um, you know, that really kind of, it was so eye-opening for me. And so that kind of started me back on the path of not denying myself quite as much, but I still, it took me a long time to get back to the point where I could just eat and not worry about what I was eating and not count the calories. And it took, you know, it was probably a good six, six to eight months of kind of slowly ramping up what I was eating. Um, and then I got to the point where I realized I'm eating what I want to and my weight is stable and I'm happy. So why, why would I want to go back to that? And I think that's the experience a lot of women have when they recover. A lot of women say, why was I spending so much energy on counting all this stuff and, you know, being so rigorous about it all when now I can just listen to my body and it's, it just does what it's supposed to do and I'm healthy and I'm happy and I'm not so focused on my food and my exercise to the exclusion of everything else. The hardest part of recovery, I think, or even excuse to stay sick for many, is um, having to deal with weight gain, making peace with a body that might not be, as we had forced it to be for years maybe, especially from the standpoint of just starting recovery, that fear can be massive, I think. How did you deal with that? Was it easy for you? I wanted so badly to be pregnant by that point that it was, I think that having that carrot makes it a lot easier to see those changes in your body. Um, so I ended up gaining back everything that, it, that I had lost and a little, and then adding some more on top of that. And it was, it was hard to see the extra jiggle and whatever, but like I said, it was, it meant that I ended up getting my period back and I got pregnant and I don't know why it is that jiggle is so bad. You know, I think, I mean, people look at me and they're all like, you look great. And yet I can look down and see the, you know, and it's like, what's the point? It, you know, I'm, I'm healthy, I'm happy. And, you know, there's, there's such a negative message from society about looking anything other than, stick thin prepubescent i mean the the beauty ideals today are just they're horrific they really are and i think it's time that we stop paying attention to what we're told we're supposed to look like what the you know models who are starving themselves and eating kleenexes to fill their stomachs on the runway you know that i don't that's not that's not beauty The problem is that the way um, they are being presented, it makes us blindly assume that 
they are all happy and loved and desired. Mm -hmm. And I have to be honest with you, before I crashed full on myself, and that was after more than 20 years of increasing control over food and exercise, I learned about media literacy for the first time yeah. and was able to to see what the intention behind all of those Photoshop models are. Yeah. That it's to keep us loyally buying buying all the products we think um, might bring us the promised success and happiness and and the approval that we seek. Yeah. So I think we have just grown used to automatically linking these to the idea that we have to look skinny like that and that we have to mm -hmm. objectify ourselves like that and I now know some models personally who told me what's really going on behind the glittery stage yeah. oh, oof. oh boy it's not what we think for way too many there's misery there's competition there's hunger for sure and there's very much a lack of health yeah It's interesting, too, how many fitness models and bikini competitors are coming out and are getting real with their admirers about their struggles and the constant body fight they they did. Yeah. And I remember well when I was an admirer myself in the 90s when Cindy Crawford and Linda Evangelista and Helena Christensen were on every cover of every magazine. I wanted so badly to look like them. Yeah. I thought that they surely had the life I wanted. And by the way, looking back, I find that things have clearly taken a turn for the worse. Models have become thinner. More and more celebrities have started to starve themselves. Yeah. I don't know. It's been developing in an awful direction, I think. And by now, one would assume that we should be smart enough to see how ridiculous it has become. And that what is being promoted mostly has zero to do with health. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, uh, gyms. Nowadays, I can't even with gyms anymore, really. The comments, the comments about having to earn our food or having to work it off. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, the pictures everywhere in the bathroom, the scale. Yeah. I mean, oh, Yeah. The other day, this happened to me at the physio clinic I go to for my back issue. And I got so mad. I heard a guy um, say to another woman that she had to, I don't know, earn her, her lunch it was. And I stepped up to the guy and I said that I found his remark very triggering and very unhelpful. Yeah. And then asked him, Would you make your cat earn her cat lunch? <laughs> and he, oh, my God. He looked at me totally confused. And I said, seriously, though, would you feed your cat only if she was out chasing mice before? And you wouldn't feed her if she slept on the sofa all day? Are you serious? Yeah. She would be like, are you flipping nuts not feeding me because I didn't race around the backyard? Yeah. I completely agree. Oh, Jesus. I don't think he got the point. I know. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I just had to speak up, and I don't even want to blame him. He's just saying what everybody says. Yeah. It's just too sad and maddening to see how long I've, you know, I have truly believed all of that. Mm -hmm. And when I never looked like these models, I just went harder and harder. Yeah. Just to get that approval. And meanwhile, I got sicker and sicker, not realizing this is not my fault. So, of course, it made me mad. Yeah. And so I had to say something. Did you get that, too, that approval thing? 
I did. Um, you know, people would tell me how healthy I looked and how fit I looked, and you know, because I I dropped a you know I dropped a lot of body fat, and you know, you could see the muscles in my arms; they were well defined, which you know, it's it, that's how you're supposed to look, but. It was at the cost of my health, and it, it's not. It's just not worth it. I mean, I think exercise in its place is great and healthy, and you know, eating. You eat to live. You don't live to eat, and it's just um, now that I'm eating as my body needs. I I enjoy exercise. I enjoy biking and ice hockey still, but I'm not crazy about it like I used to be. I'm not exercising two hours a day. Um, and yeah, so nobody ever said to me, you know, Nick, do you think you're taking this too far? Because I wasn't skeletal So, And, you know, I've, I've had so many women tell me, my doctor looked at me and she said, oh, you look normal. You're fine. You know? And so I think that there's real education that needs to take place among doctors as well, that it's not about what you look like it's about you know if you're if you're not getting your period that's telling you that you're not healthy and your body is not does not think that your habits your i mean because it's a it's a combination of everything it's your eating your exercise your stress um you know and so if you're not getting your period your body doesn't think you're healthy so for somebody to look at you and say oh you look fine or you know, that, that that just doesn't make sense. It doesn't. But people think, I did always think, sure, exercise is a tool to de-stress, so the tool against stress. And it was only about a year ago that I found out, surprise, <laughs> exercise is a big stress for the body. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just cause the brain to release the happy maker agents, but it also releases stress hormones. So it takes the body right out of rest and digest to fight or flight. And when I read all that in exercise science reviews, I thought, it seems logical. Why did I never think of it that way? But I really never did. So I learned that basically my body is under stress all day, all day long. The part of the day when I am stressing about appointments, commitments, work, shoulds, shouldn'ts, about my eating, about what I shouldn't have, what I need to, and blah, blah, blah. Then the part of the day when I feel anxious and find myself in worry mode. And then the part when I put a workout on top of all that and go exercising. I mean, no wonder I started feeling crazy. No wonder I turned into a half insomniac. And no wonder my body finally said, I'm done. I'm out of here. Yeah, yes. But I find that this is not common knowledge. Exercise is being seen as the great cure for everything. Yeah. And like more of a good thing can't hurt. And I think we have forgotten what healthy movement really is. These days, all I hear is boot camp, marathons, CrossFit, triathlon. Yeah. It seems like um, something we all have to do in order to be taken seriously, which is a joke. Mm -hmm. I see it in men a lot, too. I know some who, you know, they're all over 40, by the way, 
who in the past two or three years have started running, then running more, losing weight, losing more weight, mm-hmm. and all the while patting themselves on, on the back for it. Yeah. Some seriously denying exercise addiction. And I mean, I know one when I see one. Yeah. I have my own long story with it. But honestly, given what I went through and what I know now, I'm worried. Mm-hmm. Some of them, well, probably all of them, think they are doing the healthy thing. When in fact, nope. Yeah, I was. Um, I went to the American College of Sports Medicine conference a few weeks ago, and there was a really interesting poster about men essentially suffering from their version of hypothalamic amenorrhea because they're doing exactly what we're doing. You know, there's not the the monthly reminder, but they they can suffer from severely low testosterone based on their brains basically shutting down because they're under-fueling and over-exercising and stressed. So it's not just a problem for women, but it's much more obvious for women. So, you know, it's it's easier to see and therefore easier to, to treat and do something about. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've read places that the healthiest exercise is walking and yeah, you're yeah. not, you know, you're not the high intensity exercise can be okay when you're fueling properly, but you know what a lot of people think of it as being stress relieving and that's because you, because there are endorphins that are, that are created, but your body definitely senses it as stress and your, your cortisol will be elevated. And, um, you know, there's all the muscle damage that happens and the joint damage. And, you know, so it's, there's definitely parts of exercise that can be unhealthy, you know, regardless of how how much you're fueling. But definitely, if you're under fueling and not providing your body with the with the the energy to repair all that damage and the muscle you know muscle breakdown and everything, then you know it's definitely stressful for the body. So, what do you think is the initial problem? Is it exercise addiction or an obsession with losing or maintaining weight? It really depends on the person. I mean, I've seen women who eat plenty but are just so such hardcore exercisers that their body kind of will shut down from that. I've seen women who do no exercise whatsoever who end up with HA because of undereating and stress. So it does seem to tend to be... For most women, it's a combination of a few factors. It's it's rare to see just under... I mean, obviously, everything to an extreme can cause problems. Um, but it's rare to see women losing their periods just from under, under eating. It's usually under eating plus some exercise or, you know, a very stressful event that then is compounded by under eating or, you know, exercising because it's supposed to be stress relieving. So... One would think that a doctor should know about all this, right? But I'm sorry to report, it doesn't seem so. It's been eight years since I last had my cycle, and it um, the losing of my cycle coincided with going off birth control. So my doctor back then, she said, oh, well, it can happen. We'll just put you on this estrogen pill that should kickstart things again, and nope. It didn't. Mm -hmm. And after that, since I never mentioned children and um, I wasn't underweight. Yeah. So again, no one said anything. No one saw anything. So I just dropped it. I thought, why worry? Frankly, I don't care if I don't have a period. 
I didn't know that there are tons of other reasons than wanting to be a mother that should cause real concern for our health. But well, I was oblivious. I kept on doing what I was doing all the time until I ran myself into the ground mm-hmm. and started Googling my way to to the term HA, which I'd never heard before. And uh, only after that, it started to occur to me, oh, oh, I might have to rethink some things here. After all, I'm obviously living against my nature as a female, which I totally did. And I was like, why has this never worried me before? What am I doing? Mm-hmm. So my guess would be that other women like me who don't necessarily um, want to be mothers, that they are much less likely to address the issue at all, or maybe just way less motivated to to change something and start recovery. Um, I think... For women who don't want kids, the motivation has to be their own health. And for a lot of us, it's hard to do things for ourselves. It's hard to want something for ourselves. So it's definitely harder. And many probably don't even see having no period as a bad thing because they are not aware, just as I wasn't, of um, the ramifications of losing their period. Um, So, you know... As I said, I thought, no period, I don't care. So I think it would be really helpful if you um, could explain some of the some of the health risks of having no period. Um, so what's happening is that your brain is getting signals that are shutting it down, basically. So there's a part of your brain called the hypothalamus, and that is essentially the hormonal control center. It controls our eating, it controls our reproductive system, along with, you know, a bunch of other stuff. Sleep. Um, so sleep is another sleep is another effect of HA. It can, um, especially if you have high cortisol, it can cause poor sleep, which can have huge ramifications. Um, so there's sleep, there's bone strength and bone density, and that is a huge one. Um, you know, it's it's hard for people our age to understand, but um, my friend Lisa, who actually co-wrote the book with me, um, her mom has osteoporosis, and she can step off the curb the wrong way and break a bone. You know, she fell off a chair and broke her broke her ankle. I mean, she's had a broken tailbone, um, a broken leg, a broken foot, a broken arm. And, you know, it's at our age, it's hard to envision that. But at the same time, what we do now can have such a big impact on our later years. And we need to be thinking about that because, you know, I mean, just all the time that she's spent in the hospital and it's, you know, it's just so hard to watch and so hard for her to really take care of herself because of, um, you know, because of the osteoporosis. And so, you know, so there's that. And then there are also, there are other effects long-term on heart. There's an elevated risk of heart disease. There's potentially elevated risks of um, brain um, neurological poor outcomes like Parkinson's and dementia 
happening because your brain is not being protected by the estrogen um, that is part of the whole hormonal cycle. So in a normal, sorry, I'm a little stuffy here. Um, in a normal woman, when her, the way the menstrual cycle works is that your estrogen is sort of at a baseline level at the beginning of the cycle, and then it goes up quite a lot in the middle. And that middle part of the cycle is what protects our bones and our brains and our hearts. And, um, you know, there are so many other effects as well, like your, um, you know, nails, hair, um, your temperature. I mean, your, your temperature is controlled by your hypothalamus. So if it's shut down, you're cold all the time. I know that was something that I felt when I was not eating enough. Um, and so if you're not cycling, you're not getting that bump in estrogen every month. And that, you know, that, that has some really long-term repercussions. I mean, if, you, if you're interested, you can look at um, some of the information about women who have had surgical menopause. Like they've had to have a hysterectomy or had to have their ovaries taken out for various reasons. And um, some of the data from those women are, you know, that's where the, the ideas about what can happen with hypothalamic amenorrhea come from, um, because you then you're not getting that monthly change in estrogen. Um, and it's it's got a lot of long-term impacts, um, which, again, are hard for us to look at at our age and, you know, younger women, too. But it's so important to, you know, to have a healthy, healthy, happy life for you know many years and not be confined to a wheelchair and all that stuff. I appreciate that you pointed out all of this to us, and I love how passionate you are about this. And yay, your passion turned out to fill 550 pages. Earlier this year, uh, your book came out. It's called No Period, Now What? And... Um, so tell us about it. How did you structure it? So the book is in five parts. Um, so we sort of wanted to lead people through. So the first part is a description of what's going on with your body. Why is it happening? What are the repercussions? Um, the second section is what you need to do to recover. So it offers um, sort of... a a prescription in a way, you know, eat, honestly, it's eat more and exercise less, especially less high intensity exercise. But we go through um, research explaining why you need to do that and how it's going to help. And we also have a number of chapters that offer support. Um, so ideas that helped us, the authors, as we were going through recovering from HA, um, ideas from other women, we incorporated a number of stories from other women so that women who are reading the book can see themselves in, in the book. It's not just us saying, this is what you need to do, but it's other women also saying, this is how it helped me, and this is what I did. And so we've, we've kind of wrapped up anecdotes and advice and support all into one section. Um, so that's the, that's the second part of the book. Um, and then we also include information on um, some ideas if, you know, if you've put all of that into practice and you're still having issues, we include some help in that way. Um, we include some discussions about 
things that you might need or want to do to get pregnant, um, because that's that's a large part of our audience. Um, and then we take it further than that. What about what should you be doing when you're pregnant and after pregnancy to continue to lead a healthy life? And you know how you kind of deal with all of this after you're pregnant and you don't have that carrot anymore. And how do you sort of incorporate these ideas of true health and happiness for the long term? So we tried to put in everything that you could possibly want to know. <laughs> Great to know. So the book is called No Period, Now What? And uh, I want to know what would your first piece of advice be for any girl or woman who stopped having her period? I would say that it's really important to do as much as you can to recover your period. And for many women, that means making fairly comprehensive changes to, to your life, um, to your understanding of why you're doing what you're doing. Um, but I've, I've helped over 500 women recover their, their periods and their health and, the overwhelming response is I'm so much happier now. I'm so, I thought I was happy and healthy back then, but I didn't understand how different it could be and how much more my life could be. That's somewhere around 10 years ago, I think you told me. So how did you end up helping so many women back then? So while I was pregnant with my first son, um, I was put on bed rest and I could go to work, but it was so it was modified bed rest. Um, so they basically said, "Don't do anything because we're afraid you're going to go into labor." So like, sit down and do nothing. So I was on the computer a lot, and I found an online forum called Fertile Thoughts, and I started posting there. And it was women who had HA and were trying to recover, and so I had recovered at that point, and so I. I shared my story and I shared my advice and everything that I had learned in my research as I was working to recover. And it, it was just a, a fantastic community. And, you know, everybody was in it to help each other and to support each other. And so I've been posting on there for almost 10 years, actually, yeah, for about 10 years now. I've, I've kind of slowed down in the last few years as I was working on my book, um, But so it's been, yeah, so it's been 10 years and there have been over 500 women who have sort of passed through that forum. Um, and I've stayed a lot, of, stayed in touch with a lot of them through Facebook and other, um, you know, I've become friends with many of them. So it was that, it was that community that really um, helped me to see my life's purpose, which is helping women recover. And it gave me the passion to do what I'm doing now and to write the book. You know, a few years ago, everyone was like, you know so much, you know so much, you should write a book. And I was like, yeah, you know, I think I should. And so that was, you know, that was kind of the genesis of the book. And um, so I did, a, I, the book includes a survey of about 300 women. So I, um, I, put, I put together a couple of actually three surveys that had hundreds of questions. So I'm, you know, very thankful to all these women for spending the time that they did answering them. But I have all sorts of information about, um, you know, the different lifestyles that sort of led to HA and how people recovered and 
what their lives were like after recovery. Um, Lisa did a survey of the husbands, so we have information about what the you know what what our husbands and partners are thinking about the process and about what the what the end result looks like. Well, what are they thinking about the whole process and the outcomes? Um, so, with the husbands, there is so much thankfulness for the process of recovery and the results. Um, you know, both in terms of physical appearance and also mentally, just women relaxing and allowing themselves to live their lives and not focusing, you know, not having the focus of every day being how much am I going to eat and when am I going to exercise and, you know, being driven by that, you know, it's really hard for our friends and family to see that and, you know, because they can, they see the obsession and the how driven we are to, to perfection in those areas, but how, you know, we don't let ourselves enjoy the rest of our life. It's, it's, it all becomes so focused on that one aspect. And so the, the, the men and partners have really appreciated, um, a lot of them said, I'm so glad to have my wife back. You know, mm -hmm. she, she's the person that she was when I met her and, You know, they just, they really appreciate the love and the life that, that, that is sparked when you're not fo so focused on your eating and your exercise. And Sounds like happy endings all around. But speaking from my own experience, I think we can't really get over this weight obsessing thing without body image work, which in itself is necessarily easy. And unless we work on that, we will always be at risk of falling back into either the next diet or into over-exercising again, yeah. simply because this internalized fat shame and the amount of body image issues are holding us back, and we then sabotage the process. Yeah. I see this a lot in my group on Facebook, which, for all of the listeners who don't know, is a group of the most awesome women tackling these issues and supporting each other on the way. And you can also join us via my website, lifeunrestricted.org slash join. And as I said, um, I see and hear a lot of women, myself included, struggle with this fear of weight gain, or in other words, the underlying fear of rejection. And so in spite of them having supportive husbands or partners They fall back into self-sabotaging behaviors, which, of course, eventually leaves their husband or partner completely exasperated because their supportive words just seem to bounce off their women. So body image work seems pivotal. Yes, that is so true. I mean, one of the, one of the ways that we suggest to women to help with that aspect is don't look at it as you. Look at how would you speak to your best friend? You know, pretend you're your best friend. Would you say your legs look like tree trunks or, you know, look at that fat you have on your around your belly? You, you wouldn't because that's not what you see. And so we are so much more critical of ourselves than we are of anybody else around us. And so I really encourage women to 
try and love themselves as much as they love their friends. And when you think those thoughts of just how awful I am and how disgusting and, you know, take a deep breath and think about what you would say to a friend who is experiencing those emotions and fears and self-doubts and, um, you know, I know how incredibly difficult it is to, because for many of us, that's been a narrative that we've been telling ourselves for years and decades. Or we have been told that, and we have internalized those messages. Yes, or we've yeah. been told that, yes. It's incredibly difficult to, to get out of those thoughts and feelings. Um, so we, as I said, we have a whole chapter in the book that we devoted to different ways that women can try and get out of some of those mindsets. Because, I mean, we're all different. We all have different experiences and different ways that we talk to ourselves. And so there's no, there's no one size fits all answer. Um, but another thing that can be helpful is um, what we call affirmations. So just writing down or finding little statements. And I love your group for this. You have, you come across such great little pieces little nuggets of information and I look at them in the morning and it's like yes yes you know we love yourself and trying if you're putting on some clothes and you don't feel like they fit right you know have something in your pocket and pull it up and be like it doesn't matter or you know go you know go buy some new clothes that are stretchy and comfortable and you know it's just I mean there are so many different ways but yeah it, it's the, the mental aspect is so huge in recovery and learning to love yourself and the way you look and the way your what your body can do. That's how I started it. I think it was only at the beginning of this year when I started with what had been suggested in one of my favorite podcasts, uh, namely a gratitude list. Mm -hmm. At first, I know I had tons of resistance. I was like, oh, yeah, right, the woo-woo thing again. Yeah. But then I did it. I did it anyway. And I noticed that um, if only for the time I was writing down what I was grateful for, maybe for five minutes or so, my gremlin voice was quiet. Yeah. Because there simply wasn't anything it could say. There was nothing... Um, that could contradict what I had written down, mm -hmm. whatever it was, whether it was um, that I saw a butterfly that day or that I was able to smile at someone at the grocery store and the person's face lit up because I was probably the first person that day that had smiled at her. Yeah. So I don't know, all of that started to make me feel better. Yeah. But I feel it's important to see that it's not easy dealing with this inner gremlin, especially if we have been living with it for, I don't know, forever. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had it ever since I can remember. But only for a year or so, I have been able to see that I can distance myself from it. For the longest time, I thought it was just all me. Yeah. And now I call it the gremlin. So it's externalized and um, learning to silently talk back to it. Yeah. If it says, move your lazy ass and work off some of those calories, <laughs> I try to say, no, no, we're not going to exercise today. Or thanks for your enlightening input. But <laughs> no. We're not restricting food today. Yeah. And then the damn thing is silent for about two seconds. <laughs> and then it goes, yeah, but your thighs. Yeah. And on and on and on. Yeah. So 
Yeah, well, it's sad, but because we have grown so used to it um, that it has almost become some sort of internal soundtrack, it really takes quite some effort to stay alert and to be strong enough to talk back every time. Yeah. As I said, for 40 years, I just had this soundtrack playing in my head and I was listening to it all the time. So I kept exercising more and trying to control my food more. And mm -hmm. all the while, my life kept getting smaller and smaller until I found myself living like a prisoner. Yeah. So it took quite a long time to realize, hmm, something can't be yeah. going right here. But it seemed strange still, because all around me, people were engaging in diet talk and body shaming all the time. Yes. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's so pervasive in our society that everyone seems to be on a diet all the time. And, every, you know, you're constantly hearing, oh, I can't have that cake because I didn't go to the gym this morning. And, um, you know, I've gotten to the point where I'm like, I like cake. I'm going to have some cake. <laughs> I don't right. care if I went to the gym this morning or not. But, I mean, gosh, it took me a long time to get there. And, you know, I still... I feel like there's so much guilt in our society, guilt over everything. Like, you should be doing this, you should be doing that, you should, you know, don't eat this, don't eat that. No, and it's so hard to let go of that guilt. And I mean, especially around what I feed my kids, I have a really hard time with, with you know, all the studies that come out and say this, that, and the other thing. And organic and free range and don't eat this chemical and that's awful and you know your apples are contaminated with arsenic and your rice is contaminated with arsenic and it's like it just it's messing with our heads it totally is it's messing up our lives and it's not helping anyone except maybe those who are making money from it yeah. so i have two questions for you first of all in your experience with working with so many women Where does the most resistance come from? Is it in eating more for fear of weight gain? Or is it the cutting out of exercise that is hard for people? As in, oh, I'll jump out of my skin if I can do it. Um, again, that, that's very different for different people. Some people can stop the exercise, no problem. And for them, it's the weight gain that is more difficult. For other women, they're like, okay, I can, you know, I can gain some weight, but I can't not exercise. You know, I have to exercise. And um, it's always, it seems to be, it's, it's a process. It's not, it's very hard for women to say, okay, I'm just going to stop exercising today. It, and I've seen it more, okay, I'm going to cut down a little bit and see how I feel. And, you know, I think for a lot of women, it's, when they do that cutting down and they don't get the results that they're hoping for, that that's when they're like, okay, this is not working. I really have to go all in and just, you know, stop the high intensity exercise for now. Um, I think there are a lot of people who sort of hope that they're different and they don't have to make those extreme changes. And so, and it's only when they see, okay, it's not working for me. And they also see, okay, she, you know, this other woman did it and it worked for her. So I think, I think that's, I think so much of recovery is seeing, being in a group and seeing 
other people, what other people are doing and getting support from other people. Um, because then you have that positive example. And I think that's what really a lot of people need is to see that it's working for somebody else. And the other person is not all of a sudden tripling in size and not able to climb up the stairs. And I think there's a lot of, there's so much fear about what's going to happen to me if I put this into practice and am I going to, you know, become hugely overweight and unfit. And so I think, you know, for people to see positive examples of recovery without sort of going to their, to their worst, you know, going to their worst imagination. Um, I think that, I think that's helpful. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with being hugely overweight. I mean, it's, you know, that's another, that's another aspect of our society that, but for, for women who have HA and who are thin or underweight, that's definitely something that is seen as a negative. And, um, you know, I think our whole society has so many, so many things that we need to change, so many ways that we treat people. And it's all kind of wrapped up all together. And I think just more compassion for other people and, you know, it's, it all kind of com- comes down to that compassion for other people and compassion for ourselves. Which can be the hardest thing to do sometimes. But as you said, when we as women stand together and when we provide support for each other, which can work wonders, I found, I think we can do almost anything. And uh, I never had that kind of support in my life, such authentic yeah. and unconditional sharing. And now that I have my own group and I am part of a few precious other great women groups, Mm -hmm. I see the wonderful atmosphere that women can create when they stand together and cheer each other on whatever they are going through. I mean, to me, this is totally wonderful. And I feel as if by creating uh, my group, I have kickstarted a process in myself that is sort of unfolding now like a crack through which the light comes in. It has to be something to do with um, me discovering my innate desire to be part of something bigger, and I never knew that, Yeah. Um, that I would really want to be of service and to help others, because that in and of itself also helps me just as much. Yeah. And since we are a group that is mainly dedicated to standing up against diet culture and weight shaming, it was always my goal to provide a space for women of all shapes and sizes, of all age groups and from all over the world. The more diversity, the merrier, you know. Yeah. To me, body positivity, which is a term that is thrown around a lot nowadays, mm-hmm. and I guess people have their own definition of it. And to me, it means that we need to change outside conversations just as much as our internal dialogue yeah. towards an attitude of simply non-judgment against any body. Yeah. Seeing human beings again and seeing the human being in oneself again and respecting every body. Yes. So yeah, if I want to live in a world where bigger bodied people are not getting the right treatment at the doctor's office, 
which means as long as people are dehumanized like that, I know there's work to do. Mm -hmm. For me, that means working on body image issues and internalized fat phobia. Mm -hmm. And I believe we can only grow stronger in this tight culture world when we stand together. As long as women of different sizes hate on each other and exclude each other, or invalidate their experience, it's going to be a losing battle anyway. And in the end, it's only going to be a win for diet culture. Yeah. The real win happens when women, you know, unite and gather power together. That's when we can change things. Honestly, when women support each other, great stuff is possible. Yes. And imagine what we could achieve if we could focus on other things than how we look. And I can speak only for myself, but my internalized fat phobia still holds a lot of my day's energy. And I still haven't been able to get over the idea that I mustn't stray too far from the society's ideals. So there's still fear in my head. Yeah. And yeah, my mind is set to set myself free yeah. and to grow my voice so that I can help others setting themselves free and grow their voices. Mm -hmm. Because I think we really are unique and we are keeping ourselves way too small. And it's not that easy to break free. My group just kind of feels like home, finally. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for being in there, by the way. Nicola, um, you as a mother of three sons, how do you raise awareness of the hateful messages out there with your sons? Yeah, I mean, I, I see so many things on Facebook about body image and what to say to girls and not to say about eating and what people look like. And I'm trying to encourage that sort of attitude in my sons as well, not looking at people and judging them based on anything, their size, their color, their nationality. I mean, there's so much judgment that goes on everywhere and so I'm I'm trying to I mean my my mother-in-law constantly talks about how fat she is and how she needs to lose weight and you know it's that is such a hard message for me to speak to my boys about about you know it's not about what you look like it's about being healthy and You know, so even, I mean, even with boys, I think it's important that we talk to them about body image and not judging women, especially based on how they look. I think I'd be scared having a daughter today. I don't know. As in, how could I possibly protect her from all the negative messages she gets from all this social media chatter that is out there? I mean, yeah, honestly, I don't even know how I would deal with all that if I were a girl growing up today. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't want to sound all negative, And I sure do appreciate some of the technological advantages of the 21st century. But man, when I was little, there weren't even answering machines, dude. Nothing yes. yeah. on the internet or social media. And I went down the wrong rabbit hole even without all of that. So. Yeah. I don't want to think too much about what would have happened to me had I had to grow up in this day and age. So, yeah, I guess, yeah, you just have to tell the little ones that they are wonderful creatures. Yeah. Or do you have any other suggestions? Talking about, 
eating not in terms of how it's going to make you look, but how it makes you feel and healthy in terms of content, not quantity. And, you know, that it's hard. It's, it's, we have to reframe so many of the conversations that we're so used to having. Exactly. That's why I said we can't do it all by ourselves. No. That would be carrying one grain of sand into the ocean. But when we help each other and support each other and learn from each other's stories, yeah. we have so much more power. Yeah. Do you have any last words of advice you would like to share with our listeners when it comes to starting their healing journey? Um, I think I would say love yourself. You're a beautiful person inside and out and allow yourself to be free and enjoy your life and yeah i think that's it thank you i will work on that too and before i let you go i would love if you could tell the audience how they can reach out to you where they can find your book or any other of your great resources about periods and getting them back. Great, thank you. Um, so we have, we're trying to put a lot of information about HA on our website, which is noperiodnowwhat.com. Um, and you can buy the book there, you can buy ebooks, you can get it on Amazon. Um, and yeah, I think just trying to kind of put more information. I also have my old blog, um, which is No Period Baby. And there's, there's a lot of information on there as well, because yeah, I'm a scientist. I like research and, you know, sharing that. So I've done a lot of that on that forum, and I'm trying to put more on, on our website for the book as well. So I will link to all of that in the show notes of this episode. You can find them over at lifeunrestricted.org in the podcast section. Well, thank you so much, Nicola, for your wonderful words and great insights. Well, thank you. I really appreciate all of the work you are doing and helping so many women learn about female health and, and our hormones. Thank you for this conversation and have a great day. You too. Bye. This was today's dose of badassery from Life Unrestricted. Find the show notes with links to everything we mentioned in this episode over at lifeunrestricted.org. And if this show is making you feel good, awesome, make sure to subscribe and please let others feel good too. By leaving a five-star review on iTunes, you'll help make this show more visible and therefore more accessible for others. You're the best. Thanks. Thank you.